Ladies and gentlemen, uh, so first of all, uh, welcome to the LSE, for those of you who uh, are visiting us. Welcome to this event of the Literary Festival, for those of you who've been to other events. Uh, my name is Neil McLean, I work here at the school, uh, and it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Rod Judkins, who uh, is a lecturer at Central St. Martins, uh, and who is the author of this very fine book, uh, in preparation for this session, uh, I've been uh, reading through the book, um, and uh, one of the things, if you if you do if you uh, look at the book, is it starts with a rather uh, intimidating opening, which is an invitation for you to draw what is inside your head. Uh, I'm I'm currently only about this far through the book. Uh, at the end of the book, there's an invitation to draw what's what's now inside your head. Uh, I must admit, at the moment, uh, I, was, I was so intimidated by trying to draw what was inside my head that my copy is, is blank. Uh, so the beginning and the end are blank at the moment, uh, which is probably a sort of tabula rasa kind of, kind of reference. Um, I have to say the, uh, the challenge of uh, use of image to think differently uh, is, a, uh, is one I'm... I'm reveling in stroke struggling with uh, and uh, that's one of the things I'll be really interested to to kind of kind of uh, tease out a bit uh, during this this session what we're going to do uh, is we're going to listen to Rod for uh, about 40 minutes uh, and then as you can see from the from the layout we'll have a, an opportunity for questions invite your questions if there are Twitter users amongst you uh, then uh, there is a hashtag which is at LitFest, capital L I T, capital F for Freddy E S T. Uh, and if you'd like to, to, to comment, then please, or to, to tweet, then please do. Uh, but with no further ado, uh, Rod, please. Hi. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, and thanks for coming. Um, so I'm going to talk about my book and the kind of reasons behind it. And while I'm talking, uh, at certain points, I'm going to try and get you to do some of the exercises that are in the book. They're printed in this uh, booklet. The first one I'm going to get you to do is uh, the one called Pimp My Mule, which is that one there. So if you have a look at that, but I'm going to kind of uh, talk through a few things first. Um, so I'm going to talk about the book, and I'm going to get you to do a few uh, exercises um, from the book. Uh, the book came about because I teach at Central St. Martin's College of Art. I teach um, uh, uh, design students at uh, Central St. Martin's. And um, we found that uh, if we set the students a long project, say two weeks, then they did... Um, very little work for 13 days and then on the last day they rushed really quickly and, and to do their work. So we started setting them short projects at the beginning. So the first day we'd set them two or three quick projects and we found we, re we really liked what they did for the quick projects. They were much more instinctive and immediate and they had some kind of quite fresh ideas. So we started setting more and more of these quick projects and um, a, a course grew out of it, which I teach, and it's called 100 Design Projects. And the students have to do 20 different projects a day. So they have to think very quickly. 
They have to draw all the ideas up. I'll show you a few as I go along. So they have to draw, draw ideas up really quickly. And we found that by giving them a 10-minute projects to do, they, um, they became very good at thinking of ideas. After a week of doing uh, 20 projects a day, they became very quick thinkers and they, they lost a lot of their inhibitions about um, having bad ideas and showing bad ideas. And because they, they had to work so quickly, it's kind of inevitable that a lot of their ideas are, are, are going to be you know, quite poor. Uh, hopefully they'll have some great ideas, but some of them, if you're producing that amount of ideas, some of them are, are going to be quite weak. And that can be a good thing, because if you put up some weak ideas on the wall, Sometimes other students look at them and then they can see how they can be built on. So having bad ideas actually um, can be a good thing. Um, so th this is uh, an example of one. It's a, uh, one of the projects is they have to produce a postcard for London. Most um, postcards for London have the you know, Buckingham Palace or Big Ben or something. So they have to produce a postcard for London which tells people what London is really like and shows people uh, you know, what, what, what it's really like. And this person has done a sort of crowd, crowded tube. This student was a, a foreign student and was quite impressed by the um, wide range of um, cultures that there are in London. And this person was, uh, again, a foreign student, quite um, uh, uh, surprised by the number of iPhones that people have uh, in London. So you can see how, how it works. They have 10 minutes. They have to, I give them a project. They have to think of an idea. When they've done a few, we stick them up and look at them. And um, you know, this helps them to become sort of ideas people, very good at thinking of ideas quickly. And part of the, the reason for uh, this one was for they had to redesign the um, £10 note. Uh, but you can see they just have quick... They have to do things quickly and use quite rough materials. Um, but the, the kind of um, thinking behind this was that um, this one is for, they had to design uh, a, a, a motorbike that looked fast. So we think about how, you know, what is it that um, makes something look fast even when it's kind of <coughs> parked and still. Um, but the kind of thinking behind the course is to... Um, get people to come up with a lot of ideas and um, uh, to, to think very quickly and um, not be afraid to have bad ideas and show those ideas. This is by uh, Damien Hurst and um, a, a lot of the, the, the thinking behind the course is that we used to, say 10 years ago or 20 years ago at St. Martin's, we used to teach students skills to teach them how to do layouts and um, various skills that they needed to be a designer, and they'd go out and, and use them. But we found that because technology and other influences change society so quickly, that these skills that we taught them became out of date, kind of as they were learning them. So we found that the, the most successful students were the ideas students. <coughs> The, the, the students who could think of ideas and adapt uh, to whatever was going on in, in society or in, in the cultural world. 
So we, st- we switched to focusing on trying to produce ideas students rather than uh, students who had skills. Th- this um, drawing by uh, Damien Hurst, it's, uh, it's the drawing that he presented to Charles Saatchi to try and convince him to give him the £10,000 he needed to uh, create his sculpture, which is this one. But you, could, you can see from the drawing that he did, it's, it's, he's not a draftsman and it's not very well drawn, but it's the idea and he's put it down and it's on, on paper, it's visualised. So it was something he could show to Charles Saatchi in convincing to give him the money to, to do the sculpture. So I'm thinking about how Someone like Damien Hurst is an ideas person. He, d- he has no real s- skills. It's his um, ideas that are the important thing. This is a, a napkin that um, uh, a designer called Philippe Stark has designed an iconic piece of work on. Um, this is the piece of work that he came out with. It's called the uh, Juicy Salif, and uh, it's a uh, design icon, and it's the highest-selling lemon squeezer that there is, <laughs> and it's, it costs about 70 or 80 quid, and uh, it sells hundreds of, thousands a ye- uh, hundreds of thousands a year, and it's Alessi's biggest-selling um, design uh, piece of work. But um, if I go back to the, the design here... Uh, he, he got a commission from Alessi to design. Um, he was given quite a free brief. He could design any uh, kitchen utensils that he liked. And uh, so he was quite excited to get the commission. And he went to uh, this restaurant, and, uh, the boat and the, the island are part of the, the restaurant's logo. And so he was kind of excited and he had... Uh, um, uh, he ordered squid to eat and so he was squeezing lemon juice on his squid and he thought maybe I'll do a lemon squeezer and um, so he decided to do a lemon squeezer I'm not sure if you can see but this is the, the foot where his, his drawing started with, he's drawn a, a traditional standard lemon squeezer that we all know and so he started uh, I mean, the interesting thing about this is that it's his whole design process and thinking in about 10 minutes. So he starts with what we all know, so, and then he's kind of thinking about how he can change it and improve it. And that's one of the things that I kind of focus on in the book, that a lot of design and a lot of ideas is, is, are about taking something that already exists and then thinking how you can change it and improve it or add to it. So I don't know if you can see, but he starts here. And then he starts, he's got the squid in front of him. And he's really interested in animal anatomy. When he was a child, he used to love drawing animals and animal bones. So he really <coughs> liked organic things. And you can see that kind of influence in, in his, the way he's drawn this. So it kind of comes, comes down here. And you can see he's got kind of a bowl sort of collecting the juice. And he's starting to look at the squid shape. Another one of his big passions was uh, science fiction. And he used to really love science fiction books. And he used to 
draw the rockets from science fiction books, and you can sort of see that influence coming down in the legs here. So again, uh, what we can sort of see from him is that he, he uses the things that he's interested in, whatever he's designing, these uh, animal anatomy and science fiction feed into his work. Um, yeah, so it starts with the um, standard one. Then he's kind of looking at the squid and he's adding suckers and looking at the tentacles and thinking how he can add those. Up at the top there, he's kind of switching between the tentacles and the rocket legs. And it kind of comes around here in a spiral and it ends up with this one. And he took it to the, you know, he was really excited with the, with the drawing that he did. And he took it to the studio. Oops. And they, uh, yeah, he took it to the studio. And they started making a model. And they refined it. And then within two weeks, uh, this came out. And it was released into the shops. And it was a kind of instant classic and instant success. Um, but the, the interesting thing about it is the speed with which he turned it around and got it out into the shops. And he has this uh, way of thinking, which is that if you have an idea, you've got to realize it as quickly as possible because you get energy from an idea and you have to use that energy with the way that you, um, you, you do the work. So whenever he has an idea... He makes it happen. He, he draws something or um, uh, makes it come to life as quickly as he can. And if, there, if there's going to be any delays, then he, he really kind of rushes through things. And, but there's a sort of downside to it, which is that um, there's lots of faults with this. Uh, the legs are very long, and so when people used it, it kept tipping over. Uh, the juice tends to run down the legs rather than down the centre into the cup. The first ones didn't have these little rubber suckers on them, so they scratched people's kitchen surfaces. So it, it doesn't actually work very well, but it's still a design classic. And it's, it's a design classic because it's got his personality in it. And a lot of designers, you know, they design something, they make a, um, a model and they get people to try it out. And then they adapt it according to, to the feedback they get. But um, Philippe Stark doesn't do that. He, he, he kind of designs something the way he wants it. And then that's it. It goes out. So a lot of his, th his chairs are really uncomfortable. And <laughs> a lot of these things don't, don't work very well. But they still are hugely successful and sell in huge numbers. And it's because he hasn't sort of compromised. He, he's kept to his, um, he's kept things the way that he wants them to be. Um, so yeah, this thing about you know he works very fast. He has an idea and then he makes it as quickly as possible. Um, yeah, this this uh, this is um, some work done by some of my students at St Martin's. Uh, one of the projects I give them to do is they have to design a magazine cover, but I make them do 10 versions, and I give them about 45 minutes, maybe an hour at the most, to do those 10 versions. So they have to do 10 magazine covers in an hour, and it makes them, um, the, the, the point of working that way is that 
They don't become precious about one design. They've got ten different designs. They're having to work on them all at the same time, really fast. And one of the things that I find with students is that they work on a project for, you know, a month or more, and they become very precious about it and very reluctant to, you know, completely change direction or throw it away and start again. So I always try and get students to do a lot of versions of their project rather than one kind of special... Um, uh, or try and prevent them to, from becoming too focused on one, one idea or one result. So you can see, you know, they've, they've got certain images that they've played with, but they've, they've uh, designed a, a cover for a magazine. But they have to do ten versions really quickly... And in this way, often kind of accidents happen or um, they do unusual things that they wouldn't normally do if they were being more considered. And part, part of the, the reason for working in this way and working quickly is that if students have a longer project, they tend to go and research it. So they go to the library and they look at how other designers have done the, you know, a, a magazine cover or whatever. Or they go on the internet and um, look at how other people have, um, uh, uh, you know, what, what other ideas people have come up with for this kind of project. So they do a lot of research and then, um, so they've got a lot of other people's ideas in their head. But with this way of working, everything has to come from them. They haven't got time to go and look at books or the internet. They have to just, uh, everything has to come from them. Uh, oh, hold on. Let's, let's do the uh, pimp my mule thing for a few minutes. I'll just give you a minute or two. But uh, think about the things that we've just looked at. Um, so I'll just give you a minute or two to do this uh, project, Pimp My Mule. Has everyone got one of these? Uh, I've got one here. I'll give you that one. Have you got a pen as well? <laughs> uh, so I'll just give you a minute or two, but think of all the things that we looked at. Think about how um, Philippe Stark uh, used the things that he was, you know, his passions, he put them into his designs. Think about what I'm really thinking about with this is that how a lot of designers take something that already exists and then think of ways to improve it. I'm also thinking about how most, uh, most ideas are built on other ideas. So if you're a car designer, then you know, that you've, got, you've got to deal with the fact that there are roads and road signs and motorways and, uh, you know, tyres. You're going to have to deal with the history of the car, but you're going to have to improve on it or, or add to it or change it in some way. So with this project, I'm thinking about how a lot of, a lot of ideas are built on ideas that already exist OK, 
Okay, we're going to move on. You can keep drawing while I talk, if you like. I give my students ten minutes. I think you had about three there, so being a bit unfair. But, um, yeah, going to move on. But you might think about this next project, uh, which is uh, create a nuclear dustbin. And it came about because I read about how they're trying to design um, a nuclear waste facility and they need it to last for thousands of years and very very few designers design or architects design buildings to last for thousands of years so they are having to really think about what materials that they use um, they're also thinking about how in um, 10,000 years time our, the language might be different and the symbols of the culture would be different so the, the, the design of the building itself has to convey the, the idea of danger. So I'm thinking about how the design of the building has to say danger and don't, don't come near me and don't, don't look inside me. Uh, so the, the problem the architects have is how to talk to um, people in the, the future in 10,000 years' time who will have a different language and a different um, uh, way of using symbols. Um, this is the uh, uh, Bird's Nest Stadium in China. And um, I'm kind of thinking about you know, where people get ideas from and, and how they get them. And the architects um, found or read about um, bird's nests and how the air flows through them in such a way that it keeps them from getting damp and keeps them quite fresh but at the same time it kind of protects them from cold and, and wind. So the, the structure of a bird's nest is quite a, an interesting structure and so they copied it for the, the bird's nest stadium because it has its very strong s structure but air can flow through it quite um, easily keeping it fresh and um, uh, but also kind of uh, uh, stopping kind of strong currents of air um, this is the Beauberg in Paris, and the designers uh, had the idea to put the insides of the building on the outside. So instead of um, putting all the pipes and stuff within the building, they thought it would be, uh, you know, make the the inside space of the building really, um, you know, much much more interesting. They could do much more with the inside if all the the electrics and all the piping was on the outside uh, again it's kind of an iconic building because it's got a different way of thinking and a, a different idea behind it this is by Frank Gehry and it's uh, one of his models and I'm kind of thinking about how uh, architects often kind of um, sort of draw in 3D so they he gets sort of uh, often there's things like coffee cups and just box, cardboard boxes that are lying around in the studio and sort of stamps on them or rips them apart and kind of makes a, a structure. And um, this is the, it's the Louis Vuitton building. That, this is the, the uh, end result of, but this is the model for that building. But I'm thinking about how um, he has a different way of thinking about buildings architects used to draw up quite um, detailed plans of a building 
which were presented to the builder, and then they, the builder knew how to, how to go about building them. But Frank Gehry found that very restricting because you had, uh, uh, you're restricted to things like <coughs> girders and cement and using traditional materials in a traditional way. So he, he, he abandoned drawing plans, uh, architectural plans. I'm kind of thinking here but that by doing that, he's abandoned skill, really. He, he's thrown away the traditional skills of an architect, which are being able to um, you know, uh, draw up a building and draw up quite precise plans to, to help the builder know what he's building. So uh, Frank Gehry kind of makes a model like this, and then he presents it to uh, the builder, and then the builder has to work out how he's going to make it and so they, they have to start from scratch. Often they have to invent completely new building techniques and completely new methods, and they have to work out what kind of materials that they're going to use. So this is um, what Frank Gehry comes up with, but it's up to the, the um, builder to, do the, to work out how it's going to be made. And so I'm thinking about how he's abandoned sort of traditional skills. He... He, he's an ideas person. He comes up with the idea, and then, rather like um, Damien Hirst, somebody else has to to do the kind of technical side of things. Um, I think that's it. Yeah. So, what I'd like you to do is think about this project, and we'll just do a couple of minutes. Uh, if, if you could draw this up, but I'm thinking about how your building has to speak to people in ten thousand years' time and say, don't, don't open this building, don't come near it. And think about how they probably can't speak your language or they wouldn't understand your symbols. So we'll just do a couple of minutes on this. So I'd like you to design a nuclear waste facility. But the, the shape and form of the building has to communicate danger, don't come near me. Well, you've got to get around that as well. <laughs> Maybe it says, come inside, and then they won't bother. Okay, well, I, you can carry on drawing while I talk, but um, the next uh, project we're going to look at is Hamster from Hell. Well, I'd like you to imagine that you're a geneticist and you can add genes from other animals to your hamster to transform it in some way. Uh, so we're going to do hamster from hell next. Um, these are some of my students at um, University College London. Um, I teach at Central St. Martins and I've taught there for about 15 years. And uh, a couple of years ago, um, I was contacted by um, um, a surgeon at the Royal Free Hospital in London. And um, they asked me to um, teach the um, applied medical students uh, how to think creatively. And uh, <coughs> it's a new kind of initiative, and uh, it kind of... Um, 
kind of bears up what I've been saying about the, the kind of um, the way that skills are uh, becoming uh, unnecessary in a lot of fields and ideas people are what, what are being sought after. Um, so at the Royal Free Hospital, they, I mean, 10 years ago it would be unthinkable to get somebody who taught at art college to come and teach medical students how to, to be creative but now that the hospitals are looking for more creative thinkers. And the reason is that a lot of the, the things that are being done in hospitals, like um, eye operations and some kidney operations, a, a, lot, a large part of those operations can be done by robots. And so there's a lot of... Um, they can see that uh, the development of robots is going to take away a lot of the skilled jobs in hospitals... So, you know, they're training um, students rather like I am. I'm kind of thinking what will students need in 10, 15 years rather than, you know, in a year's time. And they can see that a lot of the skills are going to be unnecessary. So they're starting to think they need creative thinkers. A lot of the the things that, um, I mean, one of the projects that they do in the Burns unit is they're developing a kind of spray-on skin so when someone is suffering from a burn, they have this kind of spray on skin which has stem cells in it, and um, uh, you know the, the skin can repair itself. But they're they're looking for people who can come up with these ideas rather than um, teaching people skills. So uh, they've got me in to try and help the the medical students think more creatively, and. Um, Rather like a lot of the things that we've been, I've been talking about here, that they're, they're trying to get the students, instead of just learning how to do something and then going out and practicing it, they're trying to get them to think about how they might improve a procedure or improve uh, um, surgery. Uh, here I've set them, these are, the, these are my medical students, and I've set them a project here where they have to... Um, use their medical knowledge for evil and they have to create a, a virus or um, some kind of weapon, some kind of biological weapon. And the, the idea of setting a project like this to them is that because it's such an ethical environment, they're quite kind of um, constrained in their thinking. So I'm trying to get them to do the exact opposite of what they normally do. To, in, in that way, it kind of frees up their thinking so a lot of, a lot of um, design and a lot of ideas have to do with doing the opposite of what's expected, trying to get people to think in the opposite way that, than they normally do. Here they, they're developing a, um, uh, an artificial liver. So I've given them random materials instead of the materials that they would really like to use. I've given them some really awkward random materials and they have to design an artificial liver. But when I'm working at the Royal Free, I, I work with the surgeons, so I work with, the, with a liver surgeon, and we can kind of, um, my kind of creative thinking and his kind of knowledge of how uh, livers work kind of uh, can, can work together. Here's one of their designs for a virus. But the idea of getting them to design a virus is that instead of just sitting and, you know, um, in a lecture theatre and learning about how a virus operates or 
learning knowledge about a virus or reading a book about viruses, they, they have to kind of, um, sort of be a virus and think like a virus and they have to work out how to infect a body, how to get inside a body and how to reproduce. So instead of just learning knowledge and then applying it, they're having to um, uh, sort of kind of be the virus. Um, yeah, and uh, obviously, a lot of uh, there's a lot of interesting kind of creative thinking going into the field of genetics at the Royal College of Art and, and uh, Central Saint Martins. A lot of the design students are, are really thinking about genetics and how they can um, how it enables them to design life. So instead of just designing a table or a chair, they can design sort of living things and alter living things and improve uh, living things uh, and the same is occurring at uh, the Royal Free Hospital a lot of the geneticists are coming up with ideas for how they can improve and change things these are some mice who have had uh, jellyfish genes injected into them so uh, they can glow in the dark this is a, a sheep called Peng Peng, and um, scientists in geneticists in China have um, added uh, worm genes to it to make make their um, the flesh uh, less fatty. So because it's, the worms have no fat on them or very little fat, because it's half worm, half uh, sheep, it's got less uh, fat in the meat. So I'm thinking about how geneticists are using um, th their, their ability to uh, improve and, and change living things. So I'd like you to have a go at improving this hamster in some way. So you've got to imagine you're a geneticist. But you can only add the genes of other animals to your hamster. But think about how, think of yourself as a designer and you're designing life and how would you transform the uh, hamster so just do, again, just a quick couple of minutes on this. Oh, yeah, I'm trying to have a go at this. Okay, going to move on. The next one we're going to do is, is uh, don't read this. And it's a, um, you're asked to design a poster that promotes literacy so your task is to um, design a poster that uh, promotes literacy to people who can't read. So in other words, your poster has to convey an idea, but to convey it to people who can't read. So you have to do it with visual imagery. Um, I'm thinking here about, uh, this is the Space Shuttle Columbia, which... Um, burnt up on re-entry to the earth because there was a uh, one of the tiles came off the, the wing or there was damage to, to the wing and uh, seven astronauts were, were killed in this disaster and when uh, NASA did uh, um, kind of research in, and uh, had an investigation in to try and work out what happened they kind of traced it back to um, a PowerPoint presentation I feel kind of embarrassed at this point because I'm giving a PowerPoint presentation. But um, what, what happened was a week before the launch, some, uh, some of the NASA scientists um, 
arranged a meeting with the managers and asked for the uh, launch to be delayed because they thought there was a problem with the tiles and that the, t- one, the tiles might come off and damage the wing, which was exactly what happened. But, um, so the scientists were talking to the, the management, but the managers were also scientists who had a deep knowledge of, of the space shuttle and how it worked. But they presented their um, uh, information in, in, in the form of PowerPoint slides, and uh, the, their message got lost in all the, in all the uh, bullet points and all the wording, and uh, the managers didn't get the message, and the, the scientists were really confused about how on earth the launch went ahead when they thought that they had very clearly said that, they, that there was a big problem with the tiles, and, but the managers just didn't, um, couldn't understand from their, their PowerPoint presentation. They were confused by all the bullet points, and the, the, really what the scientists did was give them too much information, and it just confused the managers, and they didn't, they didn't get the idea. So I'm thinking about how um, a lot of the, the work I do at the Royal Free Hospital is about trying to um, help quite te- technical people explain quite complex issues to people in a, a more simple way. So I'm thinking about how um, often uh, if, if people communicate something in a very complicated way, they, their message doesn't get across. So I'd like you to have a quick go at this one, uh, which is to uh, uh, communicate the idea of literacy to people who are illiterate. So the people looking at your poster will not be able to read it so you've got to work out how to <coughs> communicate to illiterate people and convince them that they need to go back to college or whatever and learn how to read and write. Uh, we'll do this one and then we'll just do one more and then we'll have a conclusion. Okay, we'll just do one more, and that one is, um, did you revere a childhood toy? I'd like you to think about a toy that you really valued. I'm thinking about value here. And the way that you design, I'd like you to design a tomb for um, one of the toys that you had as a child and that you really revere. But think about how your tomb is going to convey this, um, the way that you had really valued this toy and had high regard for it. I'm thinking here about um, uh, these jewellery designers. This is Jess Mathers, and um, uh, she designs. She's a jewellery designer, and her jewellery thinks about the um, um, personal space. So it's, it's, it's in a way, it's quite aggressive. This is another one of hers, but she thinks about the personal space that a person has around them. And uh, if you imagine yourself in a crowded tube or something with, with one of these on, it kind of um, would um, kind of uh, uh, take possession of the space around you. But I'm, what I'm getting at here is that um, it, she's not just a jewellery designer who designs jewellery that in, uh, is aesthetically pleasing. She, she's, she's conveying ideas or thinking about the body through her, through her designs. This one is by a designer called Laura Potter, and it's called Wedding Band. 
So, yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Uh, but again, she's, um, she's thinking about um, uh, value and, and, and how we, we value jewellery. This designer, instead of using um, the uh, symbol of a heart in her jewellery, a lot of uh, jewellery uh, uses the heart symbol to convey the idea of, of love or passion. She uses real hearts, so uh, it, it kind of forces the wearer to think about... Um, uh, how they are expressing that um, value or, or that feeling of love. So a lot of the rings are kind of a aortas or uh, that have been sliced up. This is Laura Potter again. So th she thinks a lot about value and how we value things. And this is a, uh, a necklace and it's, it says cheap and it looks like something that you might buy in an accessorize or a seaside shop. So it looks really cheap, but it's actually made from solid gold. So it's very valuable, but it looks cheap and says cheap. So she's thinking about how um, jewellery conveys ideas about value. This again is by Laura Potter, and it's a very valuable ruby, but it's turned inwards so no one can see it. She, again, she's thinking about how often jewellery is conveying ideas about value and, and, uh, and wealth. This is by um, Salvador Dali, who designed a lot of jewellery. I'm kind of thinking here about how a lot of jewellery designers get people like Damien Hirst to design jewellery. And it adds value. Just the fact that Salvador Dali has designed it adds value above that of the gold or the diamonds that have been used in the, in the process of, of um, making it. This one actually has a kind of heart in the middle. Maybe you can't see it very well. And it kind of pumps somehow the electricity that a body gives off, kind of energizes the, the heart, and it kind of pumps away. Yeah, so have a go at this. This is the last one that we're going to do. Um, so just spend two minutes uh, um, designing a tomb for your childhood toy that conveys kind of how you valued it and how important it was to you. Okay, um, we'll, we'll stop there. Um, so the, the idea behind the book really is that as a lecturer at... Um, Central St. Martin's and places like the Royal Free Hospital. Um, I, we found that um, teaching students skills is um, not very worthwhile because they become out of date so quickly. And then the, the problem is, you know, what do we teach them or how do we prepare students for um, the, the workplace of 10 or 15 years' time? And we found that um, ideas people are the ones that last and the ones that seem to be able to adapt. So we try to teach the students to think creatively and uh, be, be ideas people. One of the, I mean, one of the, um, I mean, for instance, at St. Martin's, uh, which is a design college, probably the greatest graphic designer of the last 20 years. It's a bloke called David Carson, and he was a, a very good surfer, and he studied psychology at university. And um, 
some businessmen wanted to start up a, a surfing magazine for the surfing community in California, and they asked him to, to, to run the magazine. And so suddenly he was, ha he was running a, a magazine, and he had absolutely no training. And, but he designed the magazine, he designed the layouts and the covers, and he had no training in graphic design, so he just did it instinctively. But he did it in such a, because he had no training, he did it in a very unique and different way. And um, some graphic designers saw his magazine and s suggested that he entered the Creative Design Awards in uh, the USA. And he won all the awards that year. He won Best Magazine Cover, Best Layout, Best Typography. And he became... Uh, a star in the graphic design world and um, was like a, a kind of overnight sensation and he's, he's probably the most famous graphic designer there is at the moment but he's famous because he had no training he, he, if he had been trained how to do graphic design he would have used um, you know he would have done grids and all the kind of usual uh, stuff that most designers use but because he had a completely fresh perspective, his designs were really unusual and really different. And that's what made him um, stand out and be, be so special. So for, for somebody like me who teaches design, I have to kind of think about, okay, if somebody with no skill can, can become the, the, the greatest graphic designer, what do I teach? And so I try to teach ideas and creative thinking. And I hope I've put some of it into the book. And, um, yeah, that's it, really. Uh, so, thank you. So, first of all, thank you. Thank you very much, Rod. Okay. Um, we're going to... We have a, an opportunity for, for some questions. Uh, and the normal way this is done is that the chair asks their pre-prepared question... Uh, and so on. But I thought, actually, we should do things differently, since this is a, uh, a session on ideas. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you uh, about five minutes with the person or people next to you. So I'd like you to turn to the person or people next to you. And even though you don't know them, I'd like you to smile warmly in a way that sort of signals <laughs> lack of physical threat. Uh, it's very important. Um, and what I'd like you to do is I'd like you just to show them the picture of your hamster or your dustbin. And can I, can I you know, just take a minute or two and, and say, so how did you resolve the design challenge that you had? Uh, and then we'll have some questions informed by that experience. Okay, so a couple of minutes. Okay. So, apologies for interrupting you. Uh, what was very striking from here was, was the noise, you know? <laughs> the noise and the energy generated in, in uh, talking through how you uh, rose, I'm sure you rose, to the design challenges uh, being offered. Um, so in the spirit of that and thinking through the, 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 the process, the experience of the process, uh, let me invite questions, questions for, for Rod. And then if you, uh, would you put a hand up, we'll get a microphone to you. Uh, and if you... Uh, Start off by telling us who you are, and then ask a question. Yes, please. Hi, I, I've never had such fun over lunchtime. I've not drawn for ages, and you asked me, do I need a pen? I thought, I don't need a pen. I 
type yeah. all the time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, uh, my name is William Wong. I used to be a visiting fellow here, but I'm a photographer now. But um, I want to ask you a rather dull question, um, creative thinking and think outside the box and all that. Are our life experiences actually uh, helpful or are they a hindrance to thinking outside the box? Because skills could be irrelevant, uh, rendered obsolete very quickly. Um, but life experiences grow as we get older. Uh, how, does that, how does that interact with creative thinking in your own experiences? Um, Thank you. I, I think, um, I mean, going back to the, the work I do at the Royal Free, I, I think a lot of the doctors there, um, they have to think in a very linear way. It's part of, uh, you know, uh, working in medicine. You, you, I'm not trying to make them be creative all the time with everything they do. Um, um, so a lot of their, their thinking is very linear and step-by-step. Step. And that becomes kind of the way that they think. So if they're given a creative challenge, then they, they fall back on their very linear thinking. So um, it, it, I think it, your, your life experiences and the, the job that you do do affect the, the way that you think. And... Um, because in something like medicine, you you do have to think in a linear way a lot of the time. It, it does um, it does make it very hard to um, think creatively. Which to think creatively, your mind has to jump around and you know um, take quite random ideas from you know random sources and put them together. So, I mean, f- for me, it's really interesting to teach at, um, doctors and to teach with surgeons because. Um, at um, Central St. Martin's, it's a creative atmosphere and the students have come there to be creative and so everyone's kind of bought into that kind of way of thinking, whereas the medical students are much more sort of straightforward in their thinking and much more logical and, um, I mean, when I started working there, the, the surgeons said to me that a lot of the students want to um, learn their skills and become doctors or whatever and go out and you know practice that as a profession and that that's that's all they want to do really but there are there are some students who want to who will want to improve things who will want to become surgeons but improve liver surgery in some way or improve the 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 um instruments that they use and he said that's where where I come in, I can help those students, who the ones that want to, to make some kind of impact or change things or, um, you, you know, a, a, add something to, to the, you know, medicine. So, yeah, just to answer your question. Uh, yeah, I think it, uh, your, your life experiences ca- can, be, can um, I mean... With somebody like Philippe Stark that, that we looked at, you know, his his interests, he he could feed them into to his work. But um, if if you work in a profession which which has to where you have to think very in a very linear way, I think it does become more and more difficult to think creatively. So a lot of the things that I do at, at um, the Royal Free are, you know, like the thing that I said about, you know, they have to use. Um, create a biological weapon that, that's the kind of the opposite of their thinking just to make them think in a completely different way to the way that they normally think because they're, because they're at the Royal Free because they're so ethical everything they do has to be very ethical and ethics is really a, like a set of rules that kind of inhibit your thinking 
So, um, you know, I do things to, to, to try and free, free up their thinking and make them think in a different way. Make them think unethically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want them to be unethical when they, they go out, but w- when you're thinking of ideas, you need to think in a very free and open way, and ethics kind of is a set of rules that kind mm-hmm. of um, inhibit you, I think. Because that was a... I don't know whether anyone else looking at a, at a sheep made up partly of worms or, or mice partly made up of jellyfish. Uh, yeah. You know, there are... The, part of life experience is, is an ethical code, um, and what sort of relationship... I mean, it sounds like uh, ethics can play a, an in, inhibiting role. Yeah, on, I, on I think practice. when you're when you're trying to think of ideas, you need to throw ethics and any restrictions out the window and think very freely. Hmm. When you come to implement your ideas, that's when you might think, is this ethical? Yeah. But when, mm-hmm. you're, when you're being creative, you have to put your ethics to one side I think and you might do things that, which are deliberately irre- irreverent or mm-hmm. you know um, you're trying to mess up mess things up really and, and think mm. differently about things yeah I certainly if you're, try, if you're trying to think of ideas and then you're thinking is this ethical is this decent then it's yeah. y- it's too it's too restrictive I think yeah. okay question uh, yeah question uh-huh. <coughs> Hi, um, thank you. My name is Ariane. I actually disagree with um, what you just said, William. I was wondering if you'd say that it would be more the younger people that are not that don't already have their implanted um, ideas and can create new ones that would be more d- an advantage than all the people who would be um, left behind in this new currency. Um, because I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, when I teach at um, the Royal Free, I, I they're a very different sort, sort of student to the students that I teach at um, Central St. Martin's. I mean, I have to kind of sell the idea of creative thinking to the, the medical students. They're, they're much more logical and much more kind of reasoned in their thinking, and that, that kind of inhibits their, their, their sort of creativity. So um, I'm not sure that being young or old is, is a huge factor. Um, lady with a <coughs> Hi, uh, my name's Clara. I work for an ad agency. Um, I've just, I always think it's healthy to be jealous of great thinking and great ideas. Yeah. In all the time that you've been teaching this method, what's the one idea that you kind of think, God, I wish I'd had that idea that one of your students had? <laughs> um, I can't think of any. Um, uh, one, of, one of the students um, had an idea for... Uh, um, uh, I- using um, uh, a person's ashes to make uh, pencils with, to have them crushed down and, and um, make a set of pencils, and then uh, and uh, yeah, I thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they did it, and they got a lot of attention in design magazines and stuff. So I thought that yeah, maybe that. <laughs> wow, um, lady with a <coughs> black jacket. Hi, uh, my name is Jill. I'm an engineer and entrepreneur. Uh, I was curious, I guess we've probably all noticed a tendency for certain demographics to be overrepresented in these fields of ideas, whether that's a question of access or you know, who's more willing to speak up. Um, I, what can we do to make sure that 
all voices are heard when, and all of these varied life experiences are coming through. Do you find that the work that you do helps people to speak out kind of regardless of where they might have come from? And uh, your thoughts on that? Um, I, I don't know. I think that they're part of creativity is that um, it's sort of very accessible and that... Um, you know, a lot of the most creative people are not, um, you know, not, not sort of academically uh, very uh, advanced, and um, you, you know, a, a, an ideas person can can come from anywhere, really. Um, I mean, you see that in Silicon Valley; they, they, a lot of the the entrepreneurs are not don't have a kind of academic background or. Um, so I, th- I think um, creativity is a kind of leveller. Um, I mean, it's somewhere like St. Martin's. You, you might get somebody who's comes from a very elite family next to someone who's come from quite a poor family. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's quite random who, who, who is the most creative, I think. Um, yeah. Can I, can I ask a follow-up question it's to do with um, who feels like they have the right to speak? Um, in in the book, a lot of the exercises are uh, seem to seem to relate to psychological state. So things like self-efficacy, valuing your own uh, creative process, having the right. So things like draw a draw a prize you award yourself for a for a for a you know previously good picture or <laughs> this kind of thing. Um, I mean, how does how does how you manage the affect so the, the, the emotion and the psychological you know sort of sort of state influence your teaching or, or creativity more widely I, I suppose ideas are, are always about you know how you think and um, a, a lot of the work that I do at St. Martin's or the Royal Free is sort of thinking about how we think so a lot of the um, sort of uh, um, projects I give the students are sort of an examination of of ways of thinking and um, so yes sort of thinking about thinking uh, is is a lot of what what we do you know thinking about how our minds work and um, you know what affects our thinking and what's in what inhibits it Mm -hmm. okay question and then I think we had some My name is Ruth, and I work on Consumer Insights. So I get the principle of ideas. My question is, what behaviors or what principles should one have such that these ideas become normal and such that it's not a one-off fluke that you have to think one million new ideas before you hit brilliance? So you mentioned earlier about speed at which you generate ideas. You mentioned something about implementing fast and building on the excitement and the enthusiasm of the idea what other uh, what other behaviors and principles should one have otherwise it can it can be just you know a one of thing that a person would have a creative idea yeah well i um like i was saying that um i think that in a lot of areas of life now people are looking for kind of ideas people you know as i said that um it, it's quite uh, a new thing for somebody like me to be teaching in a in a hospital and, and teaching uh, doctors. Um, but I think there are, there are certain ways that you can, you you can think that that will will gen- help you to generate ideas. I, I think that um, you know we looked at Philippe Stark who 
has this idea of um, thinking very quickly and acting on an idea. I think that's that's quite important because if you leave an idea sort of lying around, it, you tend to start doubting it and questioning it, and then you lose the energy. Um, a lot of, I mean, there are certain techniques that I teach at, at, at students, and um, one of them is like combining two two things. So you might get take a microphone and a glass, and then you have to put them together in some way to make a new object um, and that's a kind of way of, of like thinking about things a lot of a lot of um, um, designers have really just taken two objects or two things that already exist and put them together in some kind of new way so that's kind of one way of thinking um, I mean there's, there's, there are all kinds of ways of um, generating ideas I mean we, we touched on this idea of just um, producing a lot of ideas quickly but that help, that helps to sort of um, you know um, thinking of bad ideas is a is a is a good good thing you know putting it when my students are doing these exercises they put up their ideas on the wall and a lot of them are bad and you know other students look at them like you were doing when you were comparing your your hamsters and then talking about them you you generate ideas you can you can sort of uh, think of a way of improving a bad idea but there there are kind of techniques that you can use to to generate uh, ideas i think okay thank you there was a there was a question over here lady in the in the in the green ah okay Hi, my name's Emma. Um, my colleague and I are sort of gender inclusion consultants. We work in lots of different countries around the world. Um, and, and because we try to get many people actively involved in our program designs or whatever they are, we use participatory methods. But in, I was just wondering, how does culture play out in some of your, where you've been teaching? I don't, I don't know if it's been in different contexts, but so when I engage with some uh, participants, and um, say West Africa, for example, they're very active, they're very willing to sort of let go of this linear thinking. But when I work with some uh, groups in Southeast Asia, I really struggle with using some of those methodologies. Um, so I'm just wondering if you could give any advice or um, examples of how you sort of adapt some of the, the teaching to encourage people to be much, much more sort of uh, instinctive and, and creative. Well, I think... Um like I, like I was saying, that you know, I get students to do a lot of projects very quickly. They put them up on the wall and then, then talk about them. And you could see from the when you were talking about the hamster thing that immediately you start kind of it kind of loosened everybody up. And um, but by having a lot of ideas and some of them maybe poor quality ideas, um, if everyone is is sort of showing their work and discussing it, then it does free things up and. Um, and stop people feeling very inhibited. I think if people are trying to think of one sort of fantastic idea, that's when everyone gets blocked. And so a lot of the, the things that I teach are, are to do with kind of um, escaping from the sort of blank page, really, g- giving people materials to, to work with. And um, um, so, yeah, I, I, I kind of, I, um, in, in kind of workshops and in, in my teaching, I try and... It's really, a lot of it has to do with the atmosphere, the atmosphere that you can fail really badly and it could be quite interesting failure or um, you could, um, you know, uh, you know, people feel that they could, they're free to make mistakes and um, so a lot of it has to do with the atmosphere in which people work, I think. 
You had a second question. about young people earlier so my area is very much about getting young people actively involved in program design and so we bring them into spaces where they are adult-led spaces so these adult-led organizations and there often is a pushback even though they are supposed to be working for young people because they haven't got the time to get them involved in program design they haven't got the time to get them involved in the decision-making process and I do find the young people are a bit, thinking a bit more outside the box, and I try and, and create and facilitate that discussion between the adults and the young people. But it is an ongoing challenge that we come across. So it was kind of what we were talking about earlier. You may have already answered it, but it was, that was just a question I had earlier on. Yeah, well, I, I suppose because I'm, I'm used to working with students who are kind of 19, 20, I'm kind of used to, to the way that they think and um, they, they keep me kind of informed, really, and I'm, I'm always trying to find out from them about music or whatever's going on in the digital media. So they, they kind of um, help me. I use them to, to keep me refreshed, to be honest. <laughs> there was a, a question further back, yes, and then I'll... I was interested, sorry, my name is Sarah. Um, I was interested in how you got involved with the Royal Free because the medical profession is a notoriously rule-bound yeah. and skills-based and knowledge-prizing profession for very good reason. So I wondered, did they invite you in or did, how did you persuade them that your way of working um, was a I good idea? I didn't persuade them at all. They, they um, sent me an e- email, uh, one of the surgeons called Kevin Moore, um, sent me an email. He said that he, he'd read my, one of my books, which is called The Art of Creative Thinking, which um, talks about uh, how to think creatively. And, and uh, so he, he sent me an email, and I met him, and he kind of um, explained to me this situation that, that uh, he felt that medical students needed to think more creatively, that they... He said that a lot of the students have come from school where they've been taught to pass exams and they've, they've memorised a lot of knowledge and then they come to ho- hospitals and they, um, you know, they, ha- they haven't been taught how to, to think creatively. They've just been taught to memorise information and then use it. Um, so he, he felt that there was a need for, in hospitals to, for more creative thinking and... Now I've been working, I can see what he's getting at, that there's a, a lot of, um, you know, patients are not um, um, standardised, you know, a, a lot of, uh, you know, Burns victim might come in with um, a, a series of problems that no one's encountered before, and so the doctor has to think creatively on the spot, he has to come up with new ideas, and a lot of their students are not able to do that, they they, they can, they're kind of textbook thinkers, you know, they can... Um, so that was his frustration, that the, the students he was getting from school couldn't think for themselves or couldn't, um, couldn't solve problems. They could only kind of re- regurgitate information. So it was... Th- they approached me and, and wanted uh, me to help their students be more creative. There was a question here. Hi, I'm Alice. I create music under hollow gold, and I am really interested in the idea of a bad idea, and I wonder if you could share some tips about taste and the editing process. 
Um, well, I, th- I think sort of. I, I mean, the, the the title of the book is um, "Ideas Are Your Only Currency," and I think that ideas um, kind of feed off each other. And you know, um, a, a good idea might lead nowhere, but a bad idea might lead somewhere. And um, in in the, in my teaching, I get people to think of a lot of ideas and put them up, and we discuss them. And so, ideas sort of feed off each other. You might get two bad ideas and put them together and then you've got a good idea so um, a, a lot of it is um, uh, just, just having a lot, lots of ideas and I think, I think that um, sometimes people um, kind of are too judgmental when they're, when, they're, when they're having an idea they're thinking is this a good idea or is it a bad idea and the reason for this book and the reason to, to think, think, have to think of a lot of ideas is that you, you you just have to bash out an idea and, and do it and then think about it um, rather than be judgmental while you're... Um, well, once you have all the ideas, what, how do you... I, I think you, you, you kind of uh, discuss them and you look at them and um, in, a, in, in groups people kind of throw their ideas in and, and swap ideas, a, a bit like you were doing with the hamster thing. That was just a very brief uh, example of it, but... Um, I mean, but we, I try and get people to look at ideas and think, or oh, okay, this is this is a this is a bad idea, but is there anything good about it, or anything that we could develop and look for something that might be, we might be able to push on in some way. Hmm? Somebody, uh, someone at the back, <coughs> and then we'll come to you. Hello, um, I was wondering if you think there's a point at which ideas people might be replaced by ideas computer if we get to the point <laughs> where computers could advance to a ability of generating ideas and creativity and also if um, there will be a point that you perceive when I guess society doesn't want ideas people and returns to a more structured way of thinking I was thinking about the architect who rejected you know, the skills that architects have but in a sense, I believe he's then therefore making the builder become the architect. So at what point does society say, this isn't really working and maybe we should return? Um, well, I, I don't think... I, I, I read about sort of AI quite a lot, and I think that um, they're, they're really struggling with creativity to, to make computers think cre- creatively. It's one of their, their kind of really hard problems that they have. Um, getting a computer to think logically is quite easy, but um, you know, c- creativity has to do with you know taking quite random um, sources and putting them together. And um, I think it'd be very difficult to, to get a computer to do that. So I mean, that's partly what what is special about our thinking, and that that will be really hard to, to replace. But. Um, as for whether ideas people will become uh, out of fashion, uh, I, I doubt it. Um, uh, um, I, I mean, I think ideas people need need sort, sort of technical help with things and um, you know, technical people to help them. But I think that um, uh, I, th- I think ideas are powerful. If you look at like a, a good advert, you know, it's got it, they they've usually got a good idea in them and that idea sort of sticks in your mind and so ideas have power so I think that they, they will always be you know, people who can think of ideas will, will always be um, sought after
Thank you. Um, to what extent have you thought about or taught um, these techniques um, with a view to applications in listening as opposed to idea generation? So one of the things I noticed in myself when I do an exercise like this is it has a humbling effect or it pushes back judgment. And so I wonder if there's applications, I don't know, with, in business with angel investors or who anyone, because, you know, we're used to listening, uh, sorry, yeah, based on patterns of thought and how we've been trained. And so I wonder if you've explored it in a sort of slightly different but similar kind of context? Um, sort of, yeah. Um, MasterCard wanted me to do some kind of uh, th things with them to, to help, uh, to, to do kind of like online training to, to help um, people in the financial world to, to think differently. And it, it, it's quite a struggle. To, I'm still trying to work out how on earth to do it. But... Um, I think creativity is about sort of thinking while you do something rather than taking in information. You have to be, you know, actively doing something and thinking while you're doing it. Um, I mean, the exercises you have, you have to be drawing or, or, you know, putting your ideas down and thinking at the same time. So most of my teaching and most of the work I do has... has uh, I don't get people to sort of sit and think and then do something. It's... The, the two things go together for me. What do you think is the single most important thing that we should change in our school system to make children more creative so that they can become creative adults? <laughs> 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 um, maybe they maybe they should teach creative thinking in the way that you have like um, you know physics or English. Maybe there should be like a creative thinking pathway or, or whatever you'd call it. So um, students would be taught. I mean, most of this the, the things in the book are kind of problems really that you have to solve. You have to come up with some kind of creative idea to solve a problem so I think that would be kind of useful uh, in a school that you you know you, you had a, a specific topic which was creative thinking and you, you looked at creative thinkers and you know from all kinds of fields and looked at how they got, got their ideas and, and what their methods and their, their way of thinking was and then you would apply them to, to various problems so it would be a kind of like a, a subject in itself. And then, like I said, that the, the surgeons at the Royal Free were find that students who come from school can't, can't think for themselves, can't solve problems. So if there was like a, a subject at school which was creative thinking, maybe that would be useful. But... It, uh, Creativity is, is trouble, so that's why schools don't like it. <laughs> one more question. We have time for one more question. Um, I'm Janet. I'm a social scientist, and uh, I actually I've, I find your ideas, ideas very liberating. So I, 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 let's say I like them a lot. But I can also, you know, try to think from the other side. And now you meet somebody who is maybe not so charmed by the idea of 
uh, your idea of as a currency. Uh, how would you defend it if people as, uh, say, for instance, yes, it's a skill and it has certain advantages, but these are the disadvantages. How do you defend it? Um, well, um, at the Royal Free, a lot of the students were quite um, sceptical about what, what use um, creative thinking would be to them. So I have to try and sell the idea to them and I try and show them how, you know... Um, if they are, you know, if they are aware of um, creative thinking, then as they're working in a, in a field, they can keep thinking about how how they can improve things or how they can do things differently. Um, um, yeah, but I, I kind of I show them kind of things, uh, you know, ideas that people have had in medicine and and uh, the benefits of it and. Um, try and show them how creative thinkers in that field have, have you know, come up with something and how useful that is rather than just doing the standard um, uh, you know the, the standard thing but, uh, yeah. that's a good approach <laughs> ok so I wonder if first of all you would join me once again in uh, saying thank you very much <laughs>